Become a 101 Patreon today. Head to patreon.com forward slash 101 part-time jobs and choose whether you're going to be a freelancer, a part-timer or a full-timer. You can get access to our full video interviews, to our Discord server, get pre-release tickets to our live podcasts and much more. Head to patreon.com forward slash 101 part-time jobs and pick up yourself a new gig. I did for the longest time and I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app and you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify. Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry. Also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One hundred part-time jobs. One hundred one part-time jobs. One hundred one part-time jobs. One hundred one part-time jobs. Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. It's the podcast where I ask bands and musicians about paving their own way and their stories of how it's panned out for them. Damien Abraham from Toronto Hardcore Legends, Fucked Up, is on today's episode. Fucked Up, we've got a new album coming out. It's called One Day. It's coming out on the 27th of January on Merge Records, the excellent indie label run by Matt McCorn from Superchunk, who if you scroll down, you can find an episode with him. I first saw Fucked Up in 2008 in Camden. Damien picked me up over his shoulder and ran me around the floor. I was a scrawny 17-year-old. And around the time NME was becoming interested in UK hardcore, especially bands like Fucked Up and The Shitty Limits, there was a photo like on a double-page spread of a Fucked Up or a Shitty Limits show where someone in the crowd had a cardboard sign saying, NME, go home. And that was a a moment where something in me changed. I wasn't so sure I wanted to be a music magazine journalist after that, because if there's one side I had to be on, either on the media side or where the alternative, subversive, exciting bands were, I wanted to be on the side of, of the music where the good shows were happening. And now here we are, full circle. Damien Abraham on 101 part-time jobs. Cheers for listening. This episode is supported by 2000 Trees Festival. It's a wonderful, independent, no corporate sponsors, rock festival down in Cheltenham, just a few hours away from London. A couple of weeks ago, they made a huge announcement with bands like Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes, Holding Absence, Bob Villain, Joyce Manor, Crows, 100 Reasons, who are back. They were one of the first gigs I ever went to in Milton Keynes in the pits. This year, 2000 Trees are doing four days from Wednesday to Saturday. There's the final release of those four-day tickets. It's really affordable. Festival tickets have just got so expensive, but 2000 Trees is really, really affordable. 2000treesfestival.co.uk 
Have a look at the latest announced lineup there. And when you get your ticket, you can use 101 Pod to get 20 quid straight off your ticket. That's 2000treesfestival.co.uk, 101 Pod to get 20 quid off your ticket. Last year, where Turnstile played, Jimmy World, so many brilliant bands. And I got no doubt that this year's going to be equally as rocking. All right, Damien Abraham from Fucked Up here on 101 Part Time Jobs. Go well. And so this idea of musicians, you know, the Minutemen thing, like work by day, play by night, everyone's got their own story. And, you know, this is sort of coming up to my 200th episode and I've realized that wow everyone's got a story you know there is no mm. 101 there is no beginner's guide there is no route you know i know you were a vj for mtv but i don't really know much about what you were doing before that i mean as a teenager going into your early 20s playing music what was your landscape what was your life like? um well i was actually much music which is the i think there was actually i think there was a uk much music for a short period too they franchised it out but it was a yeah, it was a Canadian version of MTV. We have this, uh, Canada's like this unique place. Well, obviously every country's unique, but we, we have this sort of culture that I think is UK coming in and influencing it at the same time as we have like American influence. So it's sort of like a culture, obviously indigenous first nations culture as well is, is very important to Canadian identity and key the original Canadian identity. But at the, there's also this sort of, other identity which is this sort of made up of the fact that we're not quite english and we're not quite american and we're just kind of in the middle so you can bring in all the kind of culture all the music from from those two places did it feel like oh that? absolutely like like shed seven was popular in toronto i always bring that up because Great. uh you know they're a band that i don't think anyone outside of toronto necessarily knows but they are uh they were huge here like a lot of english stuff was always very popular here and so we would get the enemy um, at the, at various music stores or at the bookstore. And I was like a huge fan of, of reading it. So years later to be in it was just completely surreal. Much like being a VJ at Much Music was, I feel like at the decline of being a VJ, like the, I got to hold Much Music in my arms while it died. So this key cultural institution that that raised me, exposed me to so much incredible stuff. And much music did have some really cool stuff on there, like from punk bands to alternative bands to like weird metal bands. And it was slightly more accessible, I think, than MTV was to to underground artists. You know, it was never, never super cool, but much in the same way as the enemy would cover cool stuff. You know, much music would cover cool stuff too. That's, that's vital. You need something that... Because when you're younger and you look at bands who are touring and, and it's like, okay, well, how do I get there? How do I, no matter what kind of music I'm playing, no matter how I'm, you know, no matter my philosophy on playing music, how can I get to that point? And it seems like there's this sort of maybe a gatekeeper, this invisible gatekeeper somewhere or something like this. And that's so vital having those those platform having those areas where you don't have to be the hippest thing you don't have to be a certain style of music you know somewhere where, which is a bit open-minded perhaps yeah absolutely you need those flourishes where it gets popular again and there's sort of these on-ramps that are given to mainstream society because short of having an older sibling that's into it that's passing it down to you and i guess at this point maybe a parent that's passing it down to you it's going to die without that it's like we need turnstile we need turnstile to get as big as turnstile can possibly get because you need that influx of people the same way Blink-182 brought an influx of people, Green Day brought an influx of people, Nirvana brought an influx of people, Clash, Pistols, like going back, right? Like there's always like these sort of things where all these kids can finally get exposed to this thing. And it is important and it is vital because I do think DIY punk is the only place that as a young person you you have that can, you know, let you have your, like you're saying, there there are gatekeepers out there culturally, you know, and there are ways there there's an inability to get your music out there at times, but punk and hardcore as a young person, that's the place where if you're good and you, you work at it and you take it seriously, you will go places with your band. Like there, you know, it's like the, one of the places where it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are. If you take this seriously and you make some cool ass shit, 
people will get behind your band and it will, well, I, I think I'm, I'm in some ways proof of it. Like it, it could be your career, you know, and I, we only have a career because of punk and hardcore. Like you said, like, what was I doing before this failing at life? Like I was really like a failure to launch kind of situation as, as a person, you know, like I was, um, you know, I kind of failed at a school university at that point. You, you went to uni, you tried it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, you know, now I think I would probably be diagnosed a little bit better. You know, at the time, I think it was just sort of like, oh, he's got a learning disability and they could never pinpoint what it is. I think now through my kids and, and sort of like, you know, working with my kids and, and being around other parents and hearing diagnoses and, and talking to psychologists, I'm like, oh, yeah, I probably do have severe ADHD, you know, or there is some sort of level of uh, being on the uh, uh, the spectrum, whatever that you know, means at this point. But at that point, I didn't know. Like, I just had this sort of inability to kind of get it together. You know, I was working at a couple different video stores. Um, a friend of mine were writing a TV, and I were writing a TV show. And then Fucked Up was just sort of this thing that was kind of happening with my roommates. Mike was starting the band in, in the background. And I, I think by that point, I was working at the toy store and the video store. I worked at a toy store too for a long time, which was an amazing job. Like both these jobs are great because at both these jobs, I met incredible music people. And you want to talk about gatekeeper being a video store clerk. Oh, the power you wield over people. Like it's, it's amazing that we live in a time where, you know, there, and obviously we aren't that concerned because we still use them, but there's privacy concerns about cell phones and your web browser and all these sorts of things and like whether or not TikTok is actually a, a you know spying on your phone and all this sort of stuff you gave all that information to a video store clerk willy-nilly like <laughs> i remember going in there when i first got my job and it's just like there's no assumption of privacy you know and i'm looking up all my all my professors and looking at all my like you know people had no idea right because oh. you don't you don't put you don't put two and two together you don't draw the lines between that you don't connect the exactly dots. like i was working at a, a like a cool video store so everyone rented there and because it's a cool video store our porn section was just kind of out in the open so you know people just rent porn it was that was actually uh, an amazing kind of window into human sexuality and i think that helps me understand the world uh, a lot better these days and how much weird shit people are into you know i was just thinking american pie right you mentioned blink on it too early i mean that soundtrack had a huge effect on me and probably billions of other people isn't it fucked up to think that fuck, isn't it strange to think that the 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 story like a main storyline in that movie was trying to voyeuristically secretly record a woman getting on oh it's ho horrible and you only I fucking only thought about that a few years ago and like fuck that's wrong you know i'm not sure how i i can't say how i felt at the time but you just you're like oh this is a lot of people younger watching that are young we were watching it young back then you were watching it young when that movie, like that movie was not 30 year old people watching that film that's for sure and you think that's normal that's yep. you being taught that you're taught that's a normal behavior anyway no yeah. there's a you know, I have three kids now and my middle child and I were going to watch this movie called Monster Squad, which is a film that I had not watched since I was a little kid about a bunch of kids that take on like sort of the classic universal monsters that are taking over their town. And it's, right. it's this film that I remember so fondly. I saw it in the theater. I, I love it, you know, in my mind. Okay. And so I put it on for my son and the, the casual use of homophobia in the first scene, he's like, turn this off. And I'm like, wow, you're right. Like, I had no idea, only rewatching it, like, just how pervasive all of that stuff was. And like you're saying, we're indoctrinated to that. That hate is taught and passed down and that violence. And it's just, it's amazing how, you know, people always say things like, oh, there's woke culture now. And it's like, yeah, but the, we shit was fucked before. Like, the fact that we were joking about this shit, that's unacceptable. Yeah, and there was no one there to say it was wrong. Yeah, well, like, especially because, you know, it's your parents had been indoctrinated into this thing, too. And then here's this sort of, you know, like like uh, American Pie is it, and um, I Can't Hardly Wait are two films I always associate together because I think they came out the same summer, and I think I saw them pretty close together. 
I might have even jumped from theater to theater to see them on the same day, if I remember correctly. But in that, there's just sort of like this sort of casual use of homophobia for comic effect constantly. And that's a film that also it's like, that's for teenagers. There's no way like a 40 year old person is watching that with a critical eye. It's like we lived in a time where there was such reverence for the culture that came before it. And I'm older than you. So, I mean, like I, especially me, but like, you know, and, and it's still like this too. Like there's no greater music that was ever produced than the Beatles and Elvis and the Rolling Stones. Like that's the greatest music ever produced. And that's what I was taught, you know, growing up. And it's, it, I don't think there's that reverence for old people's shit anymore. I feel like now we're at a point where kids don't want any of it. And maybe it's just my kids, you know, they don't want any, <laughs> anything from my era, but I'm finding that with like a lot of their friends, you know, there's sort of this real for better or for worse in some cases, I think in terms of attention span and things like that. But like, there's sort of this pick and choose culture now where kids don't even want to listen. To, they won't, they won't even bother with the whole song. They want the eight seconds they want from the TikTok video. And there's stories of performers performing now and, and they get past that sort of hook from the TikTok video and people just walk out. Nirvana says that they like stopped playing Smells Like Teen Spirit because there were people walking out of shows after they played it. I remember seeing an interview with them back in the day when that happened. Now they don't even give you a whole song, you know, guys. Like now they're just giving you like a verse. Well, we to start that start and end their set with Teenage Dirtbag. That's smart, you know. Like that's that's what you got to do. We early on was starting not early on, but like yeah, I guess it's early on in the grand scheme of things. Now looking back on it, but. We definitely did shows where we started and finished with police or generation because it's like, well, we know kids are going to go off for these two. So we might as well bookend it with a excitement. It's a show, right? It's a show. Well, I think off, we did a tour with off on their first sort of round of seven inches and their set was about 15 minutes and you can't get away with that shit in mainland <laughs> Europe, right? Like they will, they will shut it down. So they would have to go out and replay the first four songs from the set again at the end of the night. <laughs> A big part of what I see in my parents is that their generation got into jobs and they stayed there. And then I feel like in my generation, our generation, there is like an element of, oh no, we can have an impetus to do what we want to do in the same way that Clash and Sex Pistols and now Turnstile are saying like, look, your personality's the most valuable thing that you have. Do that, you know? And, and I think that's, that's what I, the stories of that is what I'm really interested in people about how they've really wrangled that or, or harnessed that in, in their own lives. It's weird because there's a, uh, it, like, especially now, like every tool is in your hand to kind of like, you don't have to wait for a record label. Like, Technology is really what advanced DIY culture in a lot of ways. Like I think the, the advent of the tape and the photocopier and the availability of these things and then the availability of the internet later on, CD burners, uh, I think those were, were very key. And that's why I think records became so cherished because it was the idea that like a record you couldn't just put out. So that became like sort of like a, a mark of status that you had graduated to a point where you could put out a seven inch or put out a vinyl LP. Like that was where you went. But the, the idea that anyone could do it was, you know, and now we have then the computer, when the computer, I remember when garage band hit and it was just like, everyone could just like make their music on their parents computer at home with like, you know, a couple rented microphones. It was these sort of technological advancements. And now we have a point where like I can, I'm started making these YouTube documentaries and granted YouTube documentary is the lowest form of cinema. Like it is not really cinema by any definition. I watch YouTube like TV. Now the stuff that you get on Thrasher epically latered and some amazing stuff. Exactly. That's what I think it's become is it's, it's just allowed, you know, you do kind of like micro source people that are interested in certain subjects and just kind of make stuff for these people. But Making these YouTube documentaries, it's unbelievable how easy it is. Like, it is very plug and play. Like, I, I film it on my phone and I plug my computer in to, I might like send it to my computer. Or I don't even plug them in. I send it to my computer, put it into the, I, and I'm just using the basic shit too. Like, iMovie, 
all of a sudden it looks like I spent the whole day lighting of this thing. And I've, I've, I'm just like, wow, I just literally sent the file over and it did it all on its own. But I think the, the double-edged sword that comes with that is now it's hard to figure out what you're going to do. And maybe it's just my ADHD, uh, what saying this now, but, uh, I find it hard to figure out what to focus on. TikTok's quite anarchic in a way, isn't it? It's sort of like, blah, it's like, blah, fuck, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. it's fucking nuts. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like everyone's rolling in a club. It's, it's nuts. It's <laughs> like all these children doing that. It's, they're all, uh, you know, people have been talking about what's going to happen if Twitter goes down. And it's like, I don't know, because now everything is so hyper-focused in what it serves us for. Uh, we have our video app, we have our photograph app, we have our Twitter headline app, we have all these apps that are just kind of like serving very specific needs for us and and I guess serving very specific serotonin hits. So I haven't seen any of your YouTube documentaries. I've only put up one so far. I just finished, before I got on the phone with you, I just finished my second one, which is about Jack Black's secret punk history. Fuck yeah. Great. So it's about punk. Yeah, I'm taking the episodes of the podcast and stories that I punish people with in my day-to-day <laughs> life. And now I'm kind of almost, and, and it does feel like, you know, I, I hope I'm not overstating, but it does feel like kind of like an exorcism. I definitely am overstating it. But uh, <laughs> I do feel like I'm getting these things off my chest a little bit because I do tell these stories to people. And to me, they're so fantastical and so amazing and just like, isn't punk the fucking best? Mm. And <laughs> most people don't see it that way. So I'm like, well, I'll put them out on YouTube and I'll find people that agree with me. And I feel very cathartic. You know, I think the amount of people that are in bands, probably half of your audience at a fucked up show, they're probably in bands or have been in bands. Yeah. That's the thing that punk gives you. It's like, hey, it's it's not only do it yourself, it's build your own world. Yeah. Have an idea, write a fanzine. I think podcasts are the now equivalent of fanzines and it's it's everyone you know everyone can do it everyone has a personality if you can if you can organize yourself in a way where you can put your best foot forward do it because there's going to be someone who really takes a lot of pleasure out of it yeah i think that's the the accessibility of punk is what makes it so special and the fact that anyone can do it there is a barrier to entry in in the cost of some of this stuff so that i think is is something that uh instruments people grapple with instruments yeah definitely bands and yeah and i found that with turn on a punk too like when i'm talking to people it's interesting to see what scenes we remember and what scenes we talk about and what scenes were documented and those were definitely scenes of means because you needed money to buy recording equipment you know you needed money to buy gear you needed money to pay for studio time you needed money to pay for cameras video cameras and 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 still cameras you know there's a there 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 are reasons certain people were able to do what they were able to do in in some cases and you know i've I've definitely had people on the podcast say straight up the only reason my band was able to put out records is because someone in the band sold cocaine the guy the guy made me take the part out in the episode in the end that's i'm not gonna say who it is but he straight up said like that's the only reason and he's like there are other scenes, you know, and it's funny because like I'll go on YouTube and I'll make threads about the episodes I'll put up and I'll go to try and find video footage of some of these bands and certain scene there's a lot, there's a lot of video footage of, and it's like, oh yeah, because people had means to pay for cameras and to pay for, you know, these, these things that were kind of extravagances, you know, and that's, you know, and, and I think Toronto definitely was a scene with means too, but, uh, you know, I'm just it's it's interesting looking on the shows how that kind of like is something that does come up and and then just have seen some scenes were just completely forgotten because there was no means like the sister girl riot scene out of new york which is this incredibly interesting vibrant scene that there's no records of and very little recordings of and and just it, it, it kind of like a, a very under documented compared to you know dc hardcore or something like that I come from like a middle class background. A lot of my friends, parents, they're all from London. And then in the 90s, boom, everyone bought nice houses in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And the way that we were able to play music is our parents were supportive emotionally and fiscally. Mm -hmm. And indie rock is a very 
it seems like a middle class thing. How do you weigh in on all of that? It's it is interesting because it is so it's it's one of the conceits that's kind of baked into punk. I think punk is like dualities coming together and uh class duality is a big part of it. I think this sort of art school pretension meets working class street rock and roll. Um I think you know it's 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 you know DIY versus selling out, fashion versus practicality, like all these things converge into punk, but I think definitely the class thing is a huge part of it. It's you look at scenes where there were basement shows and it's like, Oh yeah, they could have basement shows because people had basements because they had houses where they were, you know, detached houses with basements that were large enough to support having kids down there to see shows. And that's why these shows were able to happen in these houses. And then, you know, the flip side of that is also there were basement shows that happened because punks moved into poor neighborhoods where cops didn't really fuck with, uh, going around and shutting shit down as much, and you could put on shows there. Philadelphia, um, yeah, Philadelphia. Like, there's, there's, you know, the tons of places. Like, I remember, it's so complicated to try and parse in like a, a conversation, and I and I mean that is because I'm someone who constantly grapples with this sort of stuff. But you know, uh, we played the store in Detroit, right near Cass's Corner in Detroit, and this is pre-Detroit being kind of where it is now, where there's been some sort of like urban renewal revitalization of the downtown kind of thing. So this is when it was pretty much pretty, pretty scary for a lot of people would, uh, would say, you know, they would lock your car in when you went to this, to play at this show at this venue. And they were straight up like, Oh, you just, you know, be careful when you walk around, you know? And it was, when I say scary, like, you know, we walked around, it wasn't like you wouldn't want to walk around, but it was just like empty. It was just like an empty downtown that had been completely neglected suffered from years of sort of predatorial uh, real estate and all sorts of things. And so here it is just sort of lying. And here's this record store that's actually providing like kind of a cool space within the community. And it is, I think now in retrospect, you could look at that and say, well, isn't that going to be something that's going to gentrify this place? Because a lot of DIY spaces did wind up gentrifying the communities that they were in. Because they'd have numbers through and those people would be buying drinks and food exactly. and be hanging out there yeah. buying coffees in the morning. And especially like, <clears throat> I think the New York Brooklyn waterfront's an interesting example of that. Cause like there was this moment where there were just tons of cool DIY venues that popped up there. And then Vans started running a DIY, DIY quote unquote free venue down there. Mm-hmm. And then some of these venues where, uh, you know, Vice would put on shows there and then uh, there would be like corporate beer type stuff there. And it was this sort of weird moment where it was almost too good be, to be true. And now look where it is. Like even Vans can't afford to run their venue there. Vice yeah. ultimately ended up buying the building that was built on top of some of these DIY venues and put them out of business. And it's, you know, and I, and I say this like, um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm bemoaning it, but I'm, I, I know I'm guilty of it. I know I'm part of it, you know, on both sides, you know, I was playing DIY venues mm-hmm. that I'm sure gentrified Kensington market in Toronto, which is this cool market space. That's now overrun by terrible corporate weed stores. Some of which are run by cops and, and, you know, just right. like, it's just, that happens. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's been wild to watch happen here. It's the, cause that's who gave us legalization. Like we didn't, legalization was fought for but it it ultimately wasn't one it was sort of an appeasement and because of that legalization was handed down by police you know bill blair who was a former rcm ran the rcmp in canada which is sort of our federal police force here uh he ran the task force that looked that sort of like were the architects of legalization they're just uh but yeah, so there's now like Julian Fantino, who's the former chief of police in Toronto, who's responsible for putting thousands of kids, like ruining thousands of lives, you know, and I don't have stats in front of me, but I feel very safe saying that because I certainly know dozens and dozens of people that suffered uh, because they were smoking cannabis under his watch. So I imagine there's a lot more out there. Uh, he uh, he now has like a weed store in this place, Kensington Market, and it's right down the street from this park. We used to be able to walk through and buy weed from weed dealers until cops started going there undercover and selling weed and busting people. And then it was like this whole like police sting thing. 
And now he's got his weed shop just down the street from this park. And it's the most cynical thing, but you know, I'm guilty of not, <laughs> not supporting that definitely, but I'm guilty of helping break that soil that eventually would allow, you know, this stuff to grow there, you know, like mm-hmm. helping make this thing hip or whatever we did, even by just by being in a DIY venue there and making it look kind of cool, like music wise, you, you know, Weaker Thens played at the DIY venue there. The first show that the Weaker Thens ever played in Toronto was there. I saw His Hero Is Gone there. Drop Dead played there. Like it was a, it was a made Moonin. I still remember seeing Moonin there. Oh, I saw Dillinger Escape Plan play to like four people there one time. And it was, it was awesome. It was like, you know, and years later playing with Ben and telling him like, do you remember this show? And he's like, yeah, the show was terrible. I'm like, yeah, that was in Toronto. I was there. Um, it, it was a, you know, an amazing place for me growing up and like a, a thing I hold a lot of fond memories of, but you know, there are issues with it. I know this has gone way beyond just middle-class stuff, but I think, you know, it's one of these things that punk has to wrestle with. When your punk band gets to play these big festivals, who are supported and run by these big organizations that you don't know what they're doing. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting the kind of secret society of how these companies are run and, you know, what they're investing in. And from 2000 to 2023, have, have you had to have some, you know, pretty serious conversations with each other about what you're doing and, and how the way that, it, that punk is emphatically for everyone and to be open-minded and accessible working with people who are potentially not doing that and perhaps even kind of disencouraging that oh absolutely and i think we kind of like we were a band at sort of our peak popularity during the heyday of um i guess they called it guerrilla marketing but uh you know like where there was just like sort of tons of soft money available it's like you want to do a show and it's like yeah sure it's like let's call up red bull they they have a million dollar insurance policy they'll just give it to you So you don't have to worry about it. They'll pay for someone to fly in. You know, there was always that sort of, we were insulated from a lot of it by virtue of our name. You know, that's not to say we didn't find ways to take advantage of it ourselves, but I mean, like we were called fucked up. So there's only so much corporate stuff. Like we were supposed to be on skins, the TV show. I forget what band they got to do it in this end. Maybe it was Crystal's Crystal Castles. Crystal Castles. Maybe they got them to play instead. But they, we were supposed to be in a scene, and we were supposed to be playing. They ended up using our song, but we were going to be in, in in a scene in the show. And then they were like, ah, "We don't want to do something with a band called Fucked Up," you know. And it, which that's what it, the TV show is about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It would have been. It would have been weird and crazy but you know it would also and that's not like but there's definitely been you know we never had to worry about ad companies wanting to necessarily work with us you know we never had to worry about a lot of this sort of stuff that a lot of bands had to confront and the reality is no one's rich in a band i remember thinking how wealthy these bands must be (laughs) you know growing up like just Oh yeah, this guy's. I, I I was thinking about this the other day with Red Cross. Who I'm, I'm going to be talking to the guys from Red Cross in a minute, like Steve and Jeff McDonald. And they've got money, you know. They did well in music, but just as a kid, thinking they must be like, oh, they must be millionaires, you know. They got to be, you know. And then the reality of what it's like to be in a band, and like you're saying, these bands are not necessarily. It's an amazing, fortunate job to have, but it's a job. Like you are a working band, and when you're not working, you're not making any money. And that's the reality of being in this band. So when someone comes over to you and says, Hey, you want some money for nothing? A lot of people would be like, yeah, fuck. I would love some money for nothing. What do, what do I got to do? It's like, all you got to do is X, Y, and Z. And it's very tempting. It, and we, yeah, we've definitely played festivals that I have corporate sponsorship, you know, lead, I, I don't think Glastonbury does, but Leeds and Reading do, right? Yeah, yeah. I worked at the company that did Reading in Leeds. And it was such a weird... Being on the other side is so strange. Mm -hmm. Because my band had played three years before. And I told my my manager that. And look, I'm not saying that she should be like, oh my God, you're so rad, Giles, cool. She just did not give a fuck. No. You know, and it was so strange being in that office... Like what I'm, what I was writing as a web editor, like I wanted that place to be like the, the magazine editor room that you'd read about, you know, <laughs> yeah. f- 50 years ago. That was my idea of it. Yeah. It's very strange. No, there's like, 
at every turn of my life, uh, the, the fantasy uh, meets the reality of of different things, and like certainly <laughs> being involved in music, like working kind of behind the scenes, you know, be it a much music. I also worked at a record label for a while. Like I've done some other like weird. Which thing. label was that? Dine Alone Records. Yeah, of course. I yeah, helped them some uh, great stuff. when they were starting to do vinyl. Um, I was like helping them do vinyl there. And, uh, you know, you meet a lot of people that love music and are very passionate about it. But then you also wind up meeting people that you're like, oh, this is just a job to you. And yeah, not to be snobby about it or anything, but to be completely fucking snobby about it. Like if you're like rock and roll music and you weren't involved in punk or hardcore or hip hop or DIY or graffiti or something like that. Like you were probably not cool in school. <laughs> like, and I don't mean that like cool, like getting instead of the cool table popular. I mean like into cool shit. We're at this moment where you, you can just pretend to be it. You don't have to be it anymore. And I, I think, I think people know like the real ones will always know. And there's like always like sort of this sort of, uh, world that that will kind of figure it out but yeah there's a lot of you know just stealing other people's content and making it your own and slapping a brand on it support for 101 part-time jobs is brought to you by manscaped who is the best in men's below the waist grooming their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their goods with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code EARWAX. That's earwax at manscaped.com if you want to join billions of others, but probably not Damien Abraham, given what his face looks like. I'm not sure. I can't attest to how much he's shaving down below, but if I had to bet on it, if, it, if you were betting on red or black, you'd have to go with only one way, right? I don't think that beard has left his face since he turned 15. I am not a massive trimmer. But when I got this in the post, they sent me it and I felt like Batman when I undid it. It's lovely packaging. I gave it a go and it felt completely normal. I haven't trimmed or really worried too much about how I looked down there since I was a teenager and I had that pressure that I should. I've been pretty au naturel ever since then. But when I got the performance package, the Lawnmower 4.0, which is waterproof. So if, you, if you're clumsy like me and you drop it in the bath, you're fine. The Weed Whacker gets your ears and nose hairs, which I really need. And the Crop Preserver Bull Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Toner. Wow has left my balls really fresh and made me feel like George Clooney straight after a shower, straight after a bath. Manscaped, you know what? I judged them. I, I didn't think I needed it. And now I'm not sure if I can live. I'm not sure if I want to live without it. That's the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. If you want to get it for yourself or you know someone who you think should have it, or maybe they just want it, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code earwax at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscapes.com using the code EARWAX. You won't get cut. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Living easy, living free. Working the day so I can pay my night. Ask for nothing, leave me be. Living in my chocolate paradise. I'm out of
standard. This is this is great. I love all these stories. Like, you know, with this podcast, I try and get people, I try and get stories from from people's lives and what they're up to now, of course. And I mean, going back to when you're working at a video store and when you, you know, you, you, you went to uni, did you finish uni? No, no, I didn't have like, I grew up in a middle class household, you know, but I was very financially unstable. Um, and so by the time I was going to university, I didn't have any money and there was no financial support for my family necessarily. And I think that combined with my inability to, to focus and to, to really figure out doing what I was going to do. Um, I just couldn't, couldn't keep it together. So I ended up dropping out, going to school part-time and then end up ultimately just dropping out. And that was around that time that fucked up started going full-time. Um, and how, how did you, you know, if you could kind of, like sum up those first of what I guess three or five years where you transitioned somehow from you know being really psyched and really like putting yourself towards this this band that you're doing with your housemates to it becoming a kind of endeavor that is actually giving you some return like what could you how how, how could you sum that up what was that story there it's like it was a I guess it's like a eight-year period was after we did hidden world. So I remember like doing hidden world, recording vocals for hidden world. I was also loading in AFI for a secret show that they were playing at a venue and they showed up and I love those dudes. They're friends. Like I've known them since I was like 15 years old as like a little kid, but I wasn't working for them directly. I was working for the people doing the show and uh, they showed up with a fucking like tractor trailer full of gear for like a club show. It was ridiculous. And it was like loading up stairs. So I'm exhausted. I go do vocals. And then I went back to the show to hang out with them. And then went back to the studio to do vocals for Hidden World. So Hidden World was like me just trying to put it together still. Like I was um, at that time, I was doing that for work. I was also working at this company called Jump TV that ran international uh, streaming channels. So you could subscribe to jump TV and then you could get TV from Bangladesh or you could get TV from India. You'd actually get all of these international channels. And my job was to check the streams. And then eventually me and all the other stream checkers realized, cause we also work with technicians and the techs were like, you know, they, if there was a problem, we sent it to the tech, the tech would just work on it. And then that would be that. And they gave us free soda and free coffee. And it was in the middle of nowhere, like the, right by the airport, like in the middle of nowhere. So I was doing that, loading in bands, doing some stage security type stuff, just just trying to make it work. In and you were living with friends, paying rent. I mean, was that was there like was that a stressful life? Yeah, I was definitely paying rent. Um, I by that point had moved out of uh, my place with Mike. I think by the time Hidden World was being recorded, Lauren and I, my wife, were living together, and the but we were just uh, dating by that uh, back then mm. and prior to that we had all lived in a house everyone from fucked up kind of lived in this house together not all at the same time at different times minus jonah our drummer but sandy lived on our couch for six months for wow. <laughs> six months and... on the couch i mean that that's perseverance <laughs> well she was like she moved in because the place she was living at was getting the floors redone and it was supposed to be two weeks six months later we're like you gotta wow. go like you're, this is our living room. Like where we I think about myself ten years ago playing in bands, and I had no organisational skills. And now I've got a, a few. I've got some organisational skills, and I'm really fucking seeing the benefit of it. You know, in in producing the good stuff, mm -hmm. whether whether that was songs back then or doing radio stuff now. You know, I think I think learning to be organized is a real skill. Did you have to learn to become organized? No, I'm not at all organized. My my wife uh, hates that about me and I'm, I'm constantly like, I was just actually talking to my brother cause I got Steve and Jeff McDonald coming on and there's a bunch of questions I didn't ask them when they were last on the podcast a couple months ago. And I'm like, God, I wish I could find those questions. My brother's like, let me guess you wrote them on a sheet of paper. And I'm like, yep. And he's like, it's somewhere in your desk. And I'm like, yep. It is, you know, I, I, my records are organized, you know, and my podcast stuff is organized, you know, and I, I'm relatively, uh, this week's episode is going to be a little late. It's so prolific. I, Cause I just can't stop doing it. You know, that's the, the technology has finally caught up to me where it's accessible enough 
that I can do it myself. Like I truly can do it myself. Zines, I did zines. Zines were really hard. Like it took me years to do a zine, but I can do a, a YouTube documentary in two weeks. This Jack Black documentary is an hour. It's an hour long. It's an hour long documentary about Jack Black and his punk connections with just me. Like, and I'm like addicted. My wife's like, like last night I got, um, I've had this weird stomach bug for the past few days. And so last night I'm violently throwing up and I'm just like lying in bed afterwards. And then I'm like, I got to go downstairs. And she's like, why? I'm like, I got to work on the documentary. She's like, are you serious? Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm just about finished. And I just like went down here and just like, grabbed the ginger ale and just plugged away on this thing because I'm addicted to make telling these stories. Like I find it so, so amazing how we're all brought to this thing and all weirdly connected. And there's people that have been, you know, like through unbelievable hardships that found strength and ended up making unbelievably incredible art through it, through being involved in punk. And then, People that came from unbelievable privilege that learned reality checks through it. And then people that didn't learn anything through it and, you know, and just were in it briefly. But I find that the fact that we're all connected through this like weird four letter genre that was so maligned and was considered dead, you know, and, and we don't know what it is. And I also love the fact that one person's, you know, hero is another person's complete fucking poser. And there's, people I have on this show that hate each other and, you know, not for real valid reasons, just, but just because they don't like the version of punk that the other person produces. And I find it, I don't, it's, I, I just find it all fascinating how that can, how this thing can elicit that kind of passion from us. Fucked up lyrics are storytelling. Do you remember at what point like something clicks and you realize that's what you were into this storytelling, this sharing, this, these kind of cultural, like, threads i think like musical theater is a uh, big big secret uh punk history influence running throughout it and it could be like music hall stuff uh going back in the uk but it, but it could also be if you look at like the, you know you said the new york dolls rocky Horror picture show uh and i think there's a lot of kids that came out of kind of loving that stuff mike and i both had moms that loved andrew lloyd webber and right. Phantom of the Opera. He's a legend uh, here, you know. Absolutely. He's, he's pushing a lot for more money for the arts here. Well, his his uh Calm Wilkinson, the Phantom, was my friend's or is my friend Simon's dad. So I remember going over to Calm Wilkinson's house when I was in when I was a kid and like just looking at these incredible posters of him. Anyway, uh, I I grew up a fan of of Tommy, you know, and, and Phantom of the Paradise is my favorite movie of all time. Like I, I do have a love of musical theater and the idea of telling a story through song. I just, I, I think also just like, you got to make your music about, you don't, you don't have to, but I want to make my music about stuff. I just can't get up there and not sing about something. Uh, I feel, I feel like th there's ways of doing political stuff in songs for me. Uh, as far as being like a straight up political band, I've always felt it would be a little disingenuous to sing about something else that someone else is experiencing. And uh, I, I, so like I find the storytelling, the character allows that a little bit more than me kind of putting myself in the first person voice there. I, I look at the, I look at the podcast as being like, uh, this is the university that I, I, make sense for me. I know I've always had a problem focusing and it's amazing now, like looking back, my, my Nana who passed away, my grandmother on my mom's side, uh, she had absolutely debilitating agoraphobia, but she could go to places she was familiar with and she would be fine with it. Looking at the way I kind of deal with certain things, I find I have the same sort of reaction. There's certain places that just don't work for me. And it's just like a fight or flight sensation kind of kicks in. Uh, school was like that uh, the whole way through. Like it was a fight the whole way through. But when I was in a class that I liked or that I got along with political science or even economics, weirdly, like something that I, that made sense for me, I was comfortable and I could do, I could do well in it. And I, I think that's what this, 
podcast is for me. Like this is the university I should have been going to, which is just talking to people about the punk journey that they were on. And that's what I feel like it's been like, it's been like being a school. Like I have a far greater understanding about what this thing was than I, when I started eight years ago, like I, I, I definitely see how it all fits together. And it's always been a thesis I had that this thing connects, but I've just been, I feel like I've been proving it for the last eight years. DIY punk to me is also like, that's the, the, that's the hack, you know, like Josh from, uh, fucked up when he was on the, sh- on turn down punk, he said to me, punk was like the escape hatch from society. And in the same way you want to, you want to tour the world. You want to see the world. You need money. It's like, no, you need to be in a DIY punk band. You can do that too. You know? And there's, it won't be glamorous necessarily, but Rambo went all over the world as a DIY punk band. You just have to do what you do, bust your ass, do shows and like, but you can go, you can like, you know, there's, there are DIY punk bands that will go to places that quote unquote professional bands could never dream of going to this year. You know, it's just one of those amazing things about this culture is that it does provide you with opportunities to, to do things that, you know, but that's because everyone's doing it. Like you're saying for the love of it, you know, people are doing the shows. They're not making money necessarily, but they're, they're doing it because they love these bands and they want to see this band come to their place that they live and play. And the band's doing it not because they're going to make money and not because they're going to be living well, you know, it's probably going to cost them money to do this thing a little bit of money, but not much. Um, but they're all just doing it for the love of it. And that's what keeps this thing going. And, you know, if only we could find airlines that did it for the love of it. And then grocery stores <laughs> that did it for the love of it. <laughs> landlords who just want to be landlords. Just almost, you know? yeah. It's like really sealed in the magic. Yeah, exactly. Aren't you always so scared? Playing gigs for 50 time we played the old blue last and it was new year's and uh the people doing bar like the bar there were like fuck we don't feel like picking up these glasses and then they were like let's just smash them and they smashed every single glass and it was just a sea of glass might be the time we played there with gallows shit got real crazy at that show when they opened for us before they became way bigger than us um (laughs) i think the we one time went to the wrong airport in uh scotland uh trying to go to tea in the park and or we we went to the right airport the guy who was picking us up our driver dale shout out to dale from the legendary john holmes punk band not not the adult film star but uh he drove <laughs> all across uh scotland to come get us because he went to the wrong airport so we nearly missed the festival and they weren't going to let us in they're like you guys are playing in 10 minutes you know you can't come in and then we snuck in with a convoy of trucks for rage against the machine just like, yeah, like total Star Wars style. Like, let's get in with this convoy of big ships and just went in with them. And that, then we ran to our stage and we played to like no one because we were playing against the Pogues and Rage Against the Machine. So, Fuck. <laughs> but funny. it was uh, another time I like I've, I've broken tons of shit on my head and, and had to go to the hospital. I remember the actually the skins the day we found out we weren't going to be on skins we also got a bill for ten thousand dollars from mtv for smashing up their bathroom during a live performance that's a fantastic video i go back to that once a year it was definitely the first time the the first show where i did all the all the blood that was definitely that felt like afterwards like yeah we got the best of mtv the second one we're like oh my god we nearly died (laughs) Like of course, all... there's two. There's one where you're playing in the bigger room. Yes. And then there's the one where you're playing in the bathroom. Is there any part of you that thought, are, are we going to get in trouble for this? Were you scared about that? Like, we kind of, like, did the first one, and shit got, shit got fucked up. Like, they did, it was a lot of blood damage from me bleeding, but, it, like, and it was, you know, Rollins was there. Henry Rollins was, was in, in the next room, and he left. Like, when shit got crazy, he's just like, I'm out. And pieced Steve Leckie from the Valtones, legendary band, influential on the Bad Brains, and he was he was at the show too. It was it was a, a super fun time, and it was like I remember 
we all felt amazing afterwards. We went for sushi. We we had a good night that night. And then MTV's like, hey, we want you guys to come back and play again. And we're like, well, we kind of kind of did it, you know? Like, what are we gonna do? And they're like, you know, you can play anywhere you want. And then we had watched. Have you ever seen the movie Class of 1984, the punk exploitation no. film? It, it's the first Michael J. Fox movie. Uh, it's, yeah, cool. And he uh, he plays this well, one of these kids. There's a, it's mainly about a teacher who's kind of tormented by punks. And it was filmed in Toronto at this at this high school called Central Tech. And in the in the movie, teenage head plays in uh, in not in the bathroom, but they play in the uh, main hall at one point. The kids go to the show. It's it's awesome. Uh, so we were like, well, there's this like great scene in that in the bathroom where the punks are terrorizing the teacher, and they have a motorcycle driving around. And we're like, yeah, can we play in your bathroom? And they're like, okay, yeah, let's do that. So we went and we went to set up in the bathroom and the whole day we're kind of fucking shit up. Right. And we're like, this cool. And people are like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Right. So we're like spray painting on the walls. We're like, and then we're like, okay, let's go across the street. So some of the dumber ideas that I had that were to, I'm so glad didn't get pulled off was I was going to fill one of the sinks with lighter fluid and then throw a match in it and just like <laughs> make a little fireball. But it's it got so too crazy. So that didn't happen. <laughs> Uh, we were buying like tons of wild stuff and coming back with like bags of stuff from the like <laughs> Canadian tires, which is like our like hardware store, big national hardware store across the street. And they were like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And then we get, our, we're like, oh, our friend has a motorcycle. Can we bring the motorcycle down here? Like in class in 1984. And they're like, yeah, it's fine. So we get down there, we set everything up uh, and then they put up a barricade and they won't let people in to the bathroom from the outside. And we're like, okay, we thought kids were just going to be surrounding us. And they're like, no, no, no. And kids are pissed. And so as soon as the show goes live, kids throw the barricade up. Oh, no, they knocked it down because it hit a camera guy and, and like crushed a camera guy. And then the kids surged in, knocking down the motorcycle, cracking the gas tank, spilling gasoline everywhere. So the whole room smelled like gas. And then the Mike's, floor, isn't it? Oh, it's wild. Like, and then Mike's amp gets knocked down on top of him. So he leaves. So the, one of the guitars is gone. And then we just play. <laughs> and then we're supposed to play three songs. Like even the time that I'm bleeding all over the first time we played three songs. And then they just went to dead air. They're like, no, you're done. You are done. And then like, we've called the cops. Get out. Get out. <laughs> like, so like, oh shit. And they give us a bill for $10,000 at the end. And uh, we didn't have to pay it though. Like we never paid it. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Well, we'd never paid it. Uh, and, uh, and, but yeah, that's, that was our MTV Canada experience. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. And then the next day, one of the dudes from MTV Canada, one of their VJs, Darren Jones, still see him. Our kids play little league together. Uh, he went out and did an interview and was like, yeah, I didn't know it was going to happen like this. And it's like, no, you, you, you told us the whole time. Fuck it up. Fuck it up. Do crazy shit. <laughs> Hey, did you enjoy being a VJ? Did that stuff, did that come naturally? Uh, I, my VJ role was so, I was, I was so like, I'm too punk for this the whole time that I, I don't think I, you know, talking about fucking up jobs. Like I definitely fucked up that job because I would just go in. Like, I remember, fuck, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Ah, he was like this, like, kind of like Maudie Paul Weller young singer about 10 years ago that got really popular in the uk uh he was he was just a total dick and i remember he, they set up an interview with me and this kid and like i'm like in the interview and then within like two questions i'm like yeah this interview's over and the guy's like what what and it's the label people i'm like oh i'm, I'm not i'm not interviewing them and i was like walked off and they're like you can't do that i'm like why not like this interview like you don't you're being a dick like i don't want to do this interview fuck it fuck it like he was just being disinterested and like i and i got to interview like i got to do cool shit this job i got to interview liam gallagher and liam gallagher was liam gallagher in the interview like too cool for everything but he's doing liam gallagher this kid felt like mm -hmm. he was doing a impression of liam gallagher the whole time so i'm like oh, i don't you know i'm i'm from punk where you know that shit doesn't exist you know there's mm -hmm. just like you know there are bands that act that way but they get kind of like kind of cast out really quickly you know you kind of have mm -hmm. to keep it real which i think was like the ultimate hack with turned out a punk is like if someone's a punk and you get them on the show they're going to be a good interview because everyone's resume is checkable in punk you know everyone knows everyone and and someone knows someone through someone and 
you can find out, you know, if someone was around or wasn't around and if they're an asshole, if they're not an asshole, like it feels like, you know, there's been a couple of times where it hasn't worked out, but for the most part, I find that's kind of been a foolproof system. Damien, thank you so much. It's been a good fucking chat. Anytime. Thank you you for having me. All right. There was Damien Abraham from Fucked Up here on 101 Part-Time Jobs. As you know, I usually keep my episodes around 35 minutes, but in keeping with Turned Out a Punk, which lasts for three hours sometimes, I thought I'd try and be in the in the big boys room it's quite long isn't it fucked up's new record one day is coming out on the 27th of january on merge go and pre-order that at merge records or your local record store and see you next week for a new episode cheers to alex cole for sorting this out here's Coxbarrow. i've been working all day This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.